0: Forever. Dog. How do you do that with your eye? You mind me asking? I mean, me, I understand. But how do you do that? I had, in fact, trained myself to move just one eye. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a
1: character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or a series of commercials for Jack in the Box where I played Breakfast. Our guest this episode is Kevin Pollock. Kevin is an accomplished actor, an accomplished stand-up, a master impressionist, and probably the actor that goes from comedy back to drama and back to comedy more often than anybody else we've had on the show thus far. And we're going to talk about that, as well as A Few Good Men, The Usual Suspects, Avalon, a lot of Johnny Carson talk, and we begin with an epic, rich little story. I'll let Kevin tell it. This episode goes a little longer than our usual one hour, but I swear to God, there was nothing I could cut. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. Kevin, thank you so much for for doing this. I, I really appreciate this. I've been on a I've been doing a, a quiet Kevin festival in my house, and I have a lot of Uh-oh. questions. Um, no, it's good. It's good. Um, it's been told that I, I need to ask you for not. All of your rich little stories, but your first rich little story.
2: I don't know that I have that many. Uh, the first one is certainly the best.
1: Your Your encounter with him
2: when you were a, a young
1: comic and impressionist, uh, yeah, coming mm-hmm. up, and he was, he was the name. He was. I mean, uh, he was
2: more that... than the name. I mean, he's where I started out uh, late '70s with Dana Carvey and a host of others up in San Francisco in that extraordinary comedy scene and uh, if you would ask either one of us back then as well as today you know who we were able to draw from uh in terms of certain impersonations it was rich little he always had the best sort of um technique i don't know that he was ever funny to my generation of standups um but he was unparalleled in uh in abilities so yeah, he even had a television show called Copycats. Anyways, we, you know, we I think we learned we both learned our Carson. You got to hear someone else do an impression first, most of the time, right, in order to find the sort of ah, that's how you get in. And so, yeah, Rich Little was um, the door opener for a lot of those. So when I was seventeen, and I'd been performing, um. A, a comedy album lip sync act from age 10 to 16, all through middle school and high school. Wait, I'm so sorry. What's a comedy album lip sync act to clarify? Yeah, it's not self-explanatory at all. You're right. Let me do most of the math. Um, so I, uh, they didn't put in the liner notes of Bill Cosby's first album that he would go on to be the most successful serial rapist in history so i didn't know that and so i uh, w- as a 10 year old was mesmerized by his first comedy album and one routine in particular well uh, uh about Noah and the Ark, so it was. I love, I love the Noah. God help me! I love that. What the fuck yeah. a cubit?
1: I i love. I know he never said what the fuck, but the, he certainly the, didn't. Oh my God! The cubit, yep. because he he kept it real clean. I guess so. good He for was squeaky him.
2: clean, but one in real life would certainly ask, "What the fuck?" In fact, is a cubit. So uh at ten, I had memorized that bit as well as the whole album. My mother caught me doing it, uh, literally. Uh, um, as she came home, I was, well, basically my mom brought home this album. She played it in the living room out of the seven foot wide stereo hi-fi, a piece of furniture. Uh, this man telling these stories from this record made my parents laugh uncontrollably. And at 10, I dialed into, ooh, I would like to have that effect on them because I'd never seen them laugh like that. Uh, it was almost unnerving as if they were openly weeping um so when no one was around i would listen to the comedy album over and over and over and over and over again um without ever discussing it with anyone and eventually because there were no interactive games uh we had just invented fire truth be told uh i would stand in front of this piece of furniture and want to be the person telling the stories i didn't know what lip sync was i didn't think that i had invented it i was just playing And she caught me standing in front of the stereo doing what would be considered lip syncing this routine. But really, I was just pretending I was the person telling these stories and clearing my throat at the same time as it was happening on the album. And my mom uh, uh, scared me, but laughed uncontrollably and said, you're doing that for the Zuckers at Passover. So the first (laughs) performance live in front of people was at the Zuckers at Passover on their white painted brick fireplace. Were you the
1: youngest at the table? Please tell me you were.
2: Uh, Probably. So, uh, uh, and before we go, I looked for the Yaffe comb and I stood on the white painted uh, fireplace and lip synced the the No and the arc routine and everyone fell out. I mean, it was a brilliant comedy piece from his album that I was just a precocious 10 year old lip syncing. So the combination of those elements made me uh, hilarious. So I I did it all through middle school and high school. Back then we called it junior high. Um, And I started doing impressions, I guess, shortly before I stopped doing that routine at age 16, and one of which was Peter Falk. So I read in the newspaper that uh, Rich Little was coming to town, and I thought, what if I dressed as Peter Falk and went to the show, and at the right moment, in mr little's act i'd never seen a comedian live um what if i went down to the stage and did a little columbo and just got a wink or a thumbs up wouldn't that be great that was the uh seven year old 17 year old's plan so uh this is at the Circle Star Theater. I, it's not there anymore. It's about 2,500 seats in the round, in the circle, slightly, slowly rotating stage, which was never a good idea for stand-up, but, um, <laughs> or anyone, or anyone really. Prince um, can pull it off, but that's pretty much it. Sure, and I remember seeing Sammy Davis Jr. there when I was 12. I mostly remember just thinking he can do everything. I wanna do everything, and then did nothing about that. Um, as in no singing or dancing lessons. And I also remember him saying, you folks in the back taking pictures, come to the front, babe. I look like half a matzo ball from back then. Um, so I went with my uh, friend uh, Larry to the rich Little uh, performance dressed as Columbo. So it was a uh, white shirt, black skinny tie, uh his father's over my friend Larry's father's overcoat black pants dark shoes little stubby cigar I was good to go and I waited maybe it was let's just say for memory's sake uh it was about 40 minutes into Mr. Little's show where he had finished this long piece he was settling into the audience's uh massive applause crossing to a stool, picking up a small towel and dabbing his forehead. And I thought, this is it. So I get up out of my seat. And as I take one step, something pulls me back to the seat. It's not my friend, Larry. It's the belt on his father's overcoat that is now stuck in the chair of where I was seated. Uh, Colombo never had a belt to memory, but this one did. And I remember I looked down and I had a nanosecond to decide. And I've noticed since then in life in that fight or flight uh, moment, it is uh flight. In this case, it was fight. And I ripped the belt off of the jacket so that I could continue on my way down the aisle. And by the time I got to the stage edge, it was elevated. So he's a good 10 feet up. Uh, he was crossing away from the stool back to address the audience. And I just started
0: shouting, Mr. Little, excuse me, sir. I hate to bother you. I'm sorry, sir. And he sees me and he
2: comes over and says, look at this, ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Columbo. And he lowers the microphone to me. What? Yeah, that was not, I didn't know what was going to happen. Again, I just wanted to do that. Have him acknowledge that I was talented with some sort of gesture and send me on my way. I don't know why it never crossed my mind that something more than that could happen. I I uh, ran through the possibility of of less than that happening, but <laughs> you ran not the more. Of escorting out by security. <laughs> Absolutely. I just wanted. I don't, know, I don't know what I was thinking. I was seventeen years old. <laughs> also, of the you know. 28,000 stand-up shows I've done since then, no one has ever come out to the stage yelling at me, and if they had, they would not have received the microphone from me. The way I was... He wasn't handing it to me, he was lowering it to me so the audience could hear me better. Um, so, uh, again, I wasn't ready for that. So it, it, I went into a little bit of Columbo spiel, um, and I got some laughs, uh, more than Rich, I guess, wanted me to. He pulled the microphone back to himself. And then he started doing Peter Falk's Lieutenant Columbo, which was not in his uh, quiver. And it was faltering pretty quick. And, really? Uh, uh, yeah. And I noticed, he noticed that I noticed, uh, and he... Again, this is all happening lightning fast. He he puts the mic back down to me for me to speak. Now, because his Peter Falk was off, I'd never seen him even try it, but it was off, so it threw me off, and now my Peter Falk is probably an octave higher. And for some inexplicable reason, I'm sure to either one of us, he says, come on up on stage, Lieutenant. Wow. We're going further with this. Instead of this horrible moment occurring and being the end of it, come on up on stage, Uh, Lieutenant. So I walk around to the side where there's some steps, and I walk on stage. And for the first and only time, I have a tunnel vision experience where I just see him and 2,500 people are gone. The most I'd ever performed of was probably 300 at the school assemblies, and certainly not in a slowly rotating circular stage so he says what can i do for you
0: again and i say well uh let me just say mr little that the wife and i are big fans and when we saw in the newspaper that you was coming to town we bought tickets sir and we've been waiting for this night at the last second the mrs falls hill she can't come and she told me that if i don't get your autograph she's not letting me back in the house, sir." I hate the trouble. you sorry, folks. And he takes the microphone
2: uh, back again. He had just, you know, sort of put it in front of me and then he takes control of it again. And, and, and at that moment, decides to do Heckler comeback line number 17. Uh, this guy better watch out or I'll do Rin Tin Tin and he'll be the tree. So... I'm going to guess for the majority of your listeners, an explanation is needed. Rin Tin Tin was a movie dog, I think in the 40s, but certainly yeah. in the 50s. Uh, and he was a movie star, but he was a dog. And, but it's also, uh,
1: by the way, it's also the early 1970s. This is not a super timely reference for the early 1970s either now,
2: is it? No, no, no. It's, okay. It's 1974 and it's nowhere near a timely reference in 1974. He's so dating never himself. Never mind my
1: audience, your fucking audience, that there's no audience in 1974 is not like, but, that's not in the zeitgeist.
2: But I would also, uh you're 100% correct. I didn't, I was not the demographic in the audience. I think he was, in fact, performing. He, <laughs> He knew his audience. He skewed yeah. older, certainly. E- even then he skewed older. So they did get his reference and he did get a laugh. And while they're laughing, I hand him the pen and the pad. And he he goes to remove the cap from the pen as if it were like a felt pen, I guess, and put the, the back end into the top, as one would do with a felt pen and go to sign. But it was a ballpoint pen that I'd handed him. And now the middle, uh, I don't know, copper ink container, the back of it, is scratching on the pad. Uh, There's no ballpoint anywhere near this pad at this point. And he says, oh, look at this. Lieutenant gave me a broken pen, which played right into Columbo, uh, always a bit disheveled. And I went with the improv, even at 17. There was some skill. And I said... uh, Ah, oh, geez,
0: did I do that? I'm sorry, sir. I had no idea.
2: <laughs> Maybe I have another pen. And I start patting my pockets. And he says, well, I tell you what, Lieutenant, once you come back after the show, there'll be plenty of pens. Uh, and I'd be happy to sign an autograph uh, for the wife to, uh, so you could go back home, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Colombo, he says to the audience, and they applaud in unison very loudly. I take a bow. I I get the hell off stage and go back to my seat. Now, I want to just say if while I was on stage he had said, "Hey kid, you're really talented. What's your name?" like maybe I wanted in a fantasy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know that I could have broken character. I was so out of my element on stage with him uh that I could I think I could only stay in character in terms of my in terms of my yeah. Yeah. In terms of my comfort level, I was I was definitely much better off staying in character. Thank goodness that's what happened. So I go back and sit down, and, you know, my world has changed, clearly. Of course. I've, I, I've just been on stage in front of 2,500 people with the master uh, impersonator, celebrity imperson- impressionist in the world, and he's asked me to come backstage after the show. Now, I assume... It is so that uh, I can join him on his private jet where we will be winging it to show business. Given. Where he will introduce me to the heads of state, uh, the heads of the five families, and uh, my career at 17, my my schooling career is over. I'm now entering show business. And you are safely ensconced in the Illuminati
1: and everything's all set thanks to Rich Little. Sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, and all of this is discussed with my friend Larry back at our seats. <laughs> And um, he's so excited for me, even though I've made it clear to him, we may never speak again. <laughs> so uh, now I'm applauding and laughing. I'm I'm now the number one fan of Rich Little that has ever lived. Sure. Uh, through the rest of the show. The show ends. I find my way to a backstage area where I've never been in any theater. And when I get there, there's about 20 people in line, this autograph line. Now, as the kid who got up out of his chair and interrupted the, the, the headliner's show, do you think I, A, bypassed this ridiculous line and went right up to the front to begin my career with my friend, Rich Little, or I got in the end of the line like a, a well-heeled 17-year-old?
1: You know, it's a tough call because you've you've been going back and forth between just visions of grandiosity Mm -hmm. and then a remarkable short-sighted humility, Mm -hmm. Um, but
2: I'm going to go ahead and say end of the line. End of the line, indeed. Okay. And very well observed and articulated in terms of a recap of what's happened thus far, and I thank Uh, you for it. I'm trying to host here. I appreciate that. Um, So I do wait in line. And a few people gather behind me. So as I get a little closer, I see Rich Little will greet the person. Hi. What's your name? Steve. He signs something to Steve. Steve is kept moving past him from his right to his left. Thank you very much for coming to the show. And he hands Steve the autograph and immediately shifts back to his right for the next person and says hi, what's your name? And this is like a conveyor belt happening. He's, he's not engaging with anyone beyond hi, what's your name? Signs the autograph. Thanks for coming to the show. And they move and fuck off to Buffalo. And it comes to my turn. Hi. Oh, hey, there he is. I get one of those. Hmm. What? What's the name? I said, Kevin. He signs to Kevin, hands me the autograph and says, thanks for coming to the show. And I fucked off to Buffalo and he greets the next person in line. So You could imagine uh, what was shattered in that very bizarre outcome to, again, I can't take anything away from his generosity of bringing me on stage, the generosity uh, of stopping his show and and letting me talk from the edge of the stage. All of that was so uh, confirming and affirming all that I really wanted, right? i I made up the rest of it in my chair in terms of what was gonna happen after the show. I got so much more out of my evil plan uh during that moment that i didn't I didn't really feel how crushed how crushing of a moment it was until you know I got through the denial of um <laughs> of my feelings for for several days um I mean, look. When I got back to Larry, who was waiting for me, uh, he wasn't surprised that I had not, in fact, been flown to show business. He was not shocked to see you actually return
1: right. to him. Right.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he was he was happy for me that I got to meet Rich Little backstage, that sure. I got an autograph, which, again, for the record, I definitely wanted. Yeah. Um, I just didn't take him literally. Uh <laughs> When he said, "Come backstage, and I'd be happy to give you an autograph and nothing more and not a word more, <laughs> young man. have you run into rich little since so i have um i i have uh at the tonight show when uh I hadn't been on yet, but I was in the audience watching, and he was the guest host, and I sort of lamely waved from the stands after the show uh and i was probably 20 so it wasn't too far after and i i for some reason thought of course he remembers me and he waved back uh and there wasn't a lot of people standing there waving yelling mr little mr little so it wasn't like i was in a gaggle of uh, idiots so i i i somewhat convinced myself we had a moment um but then only two years ago, maybe, a uh, blind circumstance on the streets of Hollywood and uh, en uh, route to a restaurant with my better half. And she and I just ran into Rich Little. And um, of course, this is a whole career for me later. And he did know who i was and said oh my goodness i'm so happy for your success and i followed and this and that and i said so do you remember when i came on stage at the circle star theater as a 17 year old as lieutenant colombo and he said oh my god was that you so that was the first time he put those moments together oh my god and our our worlds connected once more but um but i you know listen if he allowed a total stranger from the audience to come up and thinking all these li- these years later, kill about four minutes that he wouldn't have to do. Yeah. <laughs> if that was part of his shtick, you know, I always signed on for before. 90. They got 86. <laughs> right. That I can relate to anything to eat time. I mean, I don't do <laughs> I don't do crowd work, but I can appreciate the time suck that it provides. So you know um it wasn't shocking to me that he you know from 17 to 60 uh in in the passing 43 years he he hadn't connected those dots <laughs>
1: I was watching Misery Loves Comedy, which is the the documentary you you made um about um, My directorial
2: uh, debut, yes.
1: The connection between mental health and comedy. I'm gonna put it in very very broad strokes there. Yeah, the premise um, was
2: do you have to be miserable to be funny?
1: Miserable isn't. It's, it's in the title. You use a different phrase very early, or rather, you a few people read uh, the central question of the documentary, mm. which is the connection between comedy and emotionally questionable people. End quote.
2: <laughs> right. So so, but I want to be clear that I, I I I wasn't trying to delve into the vast uh, field of mental health. Um, no no no. And 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 by the way, um, you know, I think the producers might have hoped I would, right? Um, when they came to me, this this documentary was not my idea. I did come up with the title "Misery Loves Comedy," and I did come up with the majority of the questions um, that would be put to all these performers. And then I did edit the film by myself for ten months, which was daunting. Mm. Um, in fact, I'd still be editing now. I think if there wasn't a Sundance submission deadline, which we <laughs> premiered at, I'm overly, if not absurdly, proud to say. You're um, proud. Yeah, that's- yeah. I mean, it, it was it was the it was the apex. I mean, it was the best a film like this was going to get. Was a yeah, you know, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because it's 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 niche, but it's also star studded. So. Well, I made sure of that. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it,
1: there's an interesting sort of uh, paradox yeah. there in like, yes, granted, documentaries don't, as a rule, knock them dead at the box office. But when's the last time you saw a documentary with this much A list talent crammed into it? It's yeah. Have your you need it too.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. If, if the timing, which, you know, is difficult in anyone's life, let alone career, to get all the luck, I've had, ridiculous fortunate in timing throughout my career the the absence of a a netflix or a streaming home for documentaries in 2015 um you know i i look at that as a missed opportunity because i am so obsessed with documentaries on streaming platforms i think a lot of people are in the last couple of years um so yeah no it didn't it didn't find a home. It did find a home on Amazon Prime, and I should stop. Which is where I watched it, and suggesting. it is available there. Yeah, I no, I I, I will uh, full uh, wholeheartedly endorse the film.
1: You you structure it really well. You you have everyone talk about their parents and talk about whether or not their parents were funny, whether or not their parents were fucked up, uh, and then they go into their own childhoods and 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 sort of sort of like the uh, a biography with a bunch of different uh, subjects. Um, yeah,
2: I had a friend of mine, Dylan King, who's a wonderful editor, who uh, looked at it and said, su- he's the one who suggested maybe some uh, chapters, because I had everyone answering, you know, I had, I don't know, 60 hours God. of of filmed interviews for mm-hmm. a, you know, 90 minute film. So he said, you know, to give it some structure, you might, because there was no script, there right. was no no uh story i had to invent one and when he suggested chapters because i'd asked these people a lot of the same questions then i could one chapter is called bombs away and it's just people talking about bombing right one chapter chapter i think you're referring to uh who's your daddy and or mommy right um refers to the kind of support or lack of uh from your parents yeah
1: and i want to hop right over to that now i i was going to ask were your parents supportive of a child who starts stand-up at the age of 10, but I mean, I guess they have to be or else you don't get two gigs. Um, If my mom had not
2: uh, in the moment humiliated me when catching me lip-syncing Bill Cosby's album at age 10 and announced you're going to perform that at the Zuckers for Passover, I don't know how long it would have taken me to get up in front of people and do any sort of performance, to be honest with you. That was all her doing. So, it's, it's beyond
1: supportive to the point of... Yes. Uh, uh, it was stage mom one time. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. She got uh, but, me but, booked <laughs> at the Zuckers for Passover. But at a Seder, so, you know, you can't really yeah. call her, you know, Mama and Rose I,
2: necessarily. <laughs> no. I do want to be clear, the Zuckers were our first uh, cousins. So, it wasn't a difficult booking
1: that mom <laughs> pulled up. And you're, I mean, not for nothing, you're doing Old Testament material. That
2: can't go wrong. I mean... It really dovetailed beautifully. It was a really spot on booking on her part. Yeah.
0: So, so
2: two years
1: later, you see Sammy Davis Jr. That's really interesting. And 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 Sammy also a very gifted impressionist. Uh, yeah. Uh, incidentally, um, and and you you said just now, I I, I scribbled it down. You said I want to do everything. You look at Sammy Davis Jr. and said I want to do everything because here's a guy he
2: made was, it look so easy. He really and he was did. so he was really brilliant, the
1: most effortless. Of that yeah. generation, it's hard to think of a more effortless
2: performer. And could do everything and did everything. Um, yeah. And the weird connection I have to him is my first Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yeah. Um, I don't know that you want to jump that far ahead, but... Um, I, I yeah, that's get, fine. Let's go ahead. I did get bumped from my first Tonight Show appearance, which I had orchestrated. Masterfully, if not insanely, to just go to the couch as an actor instead of going on as a comedian, where I would, which is how I was first asked to do the Tonight Show, and then um, run the risk of maybe, maybe not be called over to the couch by the Kingmaker. Yeah. So Jim McCauley was the gatekeeper; he was the booker for the Tonight Show of all stand-up comedians, and I'd met him at the Tonight Show when I went as other comedians' guests. I was befriended early on by Seinfeld and Shanling and Paul Reiser. And and so when they would do their tonight shows, they would always bring a couple of comics, you know, for backstage riffing and running and stuff. Yeah. And so I met him through them, you know, again, that's a great introduction to a guy like a gatekeeper like Jim McCauley. And then one night at the improv, we were passing each other and I said, hey, Jim, uh, who are you here to see tonight? And he said, well, actually, I just read on the list, the guy I came to see is canceled. And I saw your name on the list. So I thought I would stick around and watch your set. I think you're ready to do the show. Now, I'd waited since age 10 for that
0: moment. Yeah, of course.
2: And there it was. I was probably 28. I'd been in LA three years. And when he said that to me, without any forethought, the following came out of me. Well, Jim, uh, wow. That's incredible. I can't thank you enough for the notion you've just laid out. Um, I have to say, though, as a fan of the show from age 10, I believe I'll do best on the show sitting next to Johnny doing my impersonations more so than standing on the star and doing my six minutes as a stand-up. Now,
0: i Where do you so- get the
2: balls? <laughs> you know, it was the rich little moment and this moment. Those are the two, uh, truly- <laughs> uh I mean, well, there was maybe one or two others, but so i again, I hadn't thought this through at all, and I just this just came out of and I, I mean I can honestly and objectively say all these years later, there was some fear that I was not going to have the impact on the Tonight Show as a stand up that I would sitting next to Johnny because, as a fan of the show, I knew he loved impersonations, and I knew he he did them himself. Right? And you're also you you
1: would have put yourself in a position where you wouldn't just hear the audience laugh. We would see the bookends of Johnny and Ed McMahon convulsing over your shit. I, I hear your point. There's a really good visual there of you sitting between these two giants who are cracking yeah. up. But my
2: heroes of Albert Brooks and Don Rickles and Steve Martin, um, had come out and done their their Best at the couch, you know? And so the that fantasy uh was in my head. But mostly I knew that I would be best suited for the couch. And so I said to Macaulay, look, I'm also a student of the show, um, having been there, and I know there's a protocol, and you can't bring me out to the couch as an unknown comedian but i'll tell you i'm willing to wait till i have a tv show or a movie where you can justify bringing me out as an actor and taking me right to the couch and then i'll do my impersonations and the first time i do peter falk for johnny i think he's gonna love it he's gonna he's gonna go nuts and jim looked at me like i just stepped off an alien spacecraft and then recovered and said well Do you have a TV show or a movie coming out anytime soon? (laughs) What I did not share with Jim uh, was that I didn't even have an agent to audition for TV shows or movies yet. So I said, well, no, I don't. Um, He said, look, listen, uh, if you want to wait, that's fine. You're only going to get better. I'm not concerned. Uh, We'll keep in touch. And we'll see how your pursuit of, of, of a movie or a TV show goes. I, and he said, I can't disagree with you. You would have a greater impact on the couch, your, your abilities. And I also can't disagree with your awareness that that's not going to happen until you have a TV show or a movie. So let's just, you know, I'll see you around and we'll see how it goes. Now, I didn't tell a soul that I had this conversation. Nor
1: should you. Who would you right. tell? You're going to go into a, the green room of the comedy store and be like, guys, I just had the funniest conversation with
2: Macaulay. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or anyone I knew, uh, a girlfriend, anyone with a right mind was not going to hear the story for fear that they would say, I'm sorry, you were asked to do the Tonight Show. Well, first of all, no, I wasn't asked to do the Tonight Show. He was going to watch me perform because he said, quote, I think you're ready to do the Tonight Show. I still couldn't get through the conversation without the person taking a rightful position of, you're an idiot, you're an asshole, call Macaulay right now and tell him you'd like to audition for The Tonight Show, you fucking moron. (laughs) Um, So I didn't tell anyone. And about a year later, and I would see him on occasion, you know, I continued to go to The Tonight Show with other comedians, I would see him around the improv, um, And about a year or so later, I got this movie Willow that Ron Howard directed and George Lucas produced. It was enough to justify me coming on the show as an actor, which Macaulay agreed to. And um, my first time scheduled to be on the show, Sammy Davis Jr., is the music act. And um, I, as the comedian, was the last act, of course. And uh, Sammy um, not only did two songs, Mostly these music acts do one song. Sammy did two, not only did two songs, but went into a third, um, which I'd never seen in my lifetime, No, uh, did four songs. (sighs) And Macaulay came into my dressing room during the third song and said, (laughs) we're going to have to bump you. And I said, of course. And then he said, we'll reschedule. Don't worry. And he left. And I started. I kicked the wall once. I don't know that I started kicking the wall. I think I just kicked it once. The issue is you have to call the 65 people that you called to say, I'm on the Tonight Show tonight. And yeah. and many comedians went through this over the decades. Hundreds, hundreds got bumped. It happened all the time. And so I don't know that I've ever talked to one who wasn't bumped, who eventually ended up on the show. Uh cut to I'm leaving and I run into Sammy Davis Jr. in a parking lot coming out of the tonight show where Carson's car was always parked. And I saw Sammy and he said, I am so sorry you kids with the whole shakunk kakunk. And he took pictures. That's a quote. He took pictures <laughs> with my girlfriend and I in the parking lot, um, after, uh, ruining my life. Uh, temporarily. So when I temporarily, when I did eventually get on the show with Johnny and, um, you know, it's 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 probably uh it's it's gotta be number one in terms of taking the reins of your path and as you said, showing insane moxie chutzpah craziness to try to control such an uncontrollable aspect of show business, you know. And yet, it worked. Here's the thing I'm noticing because I,
1: I I don't know if you've ever done a deep dive in your career over the span of a week, but what is I've, I've not not over a week. What's uh, what's striking is I am I'm gen- and I'm not saying this is like idle flattery. I think this is an interesting phenomenon. I am hard pressed to think of a of somebody who who made their bones in stand up who has then transitioned back and forth from. From from high prestige drama to comedy to sitcom to continuing to do stand up, um, to doing hosting gigs. Which in the United States we don't. Our hosts are our hosts. We don't let them act as a rule. I was a girl who couldn't say no. Uh, well, okay, but here's the thing: <laughs> the girl who can't say no. Yeah, it, it doesn't always Gets get positioned <laughs> by both Chandling and Scorsese. So you know, hang on, yeah yeah um and yeah you've no I understand there's a distinction there
2: <laughs> i i I'm uh, grateful to have it uh, overviewed as such. um I have said no on occasion, but <laughs> case, starting out as a stand up, you know anytime you get an opportunity for stage time, the answer is yes, sure. So after A Few Good Men came out in 92 and I went from auditioning to getting offers. Well, let's back up one second here. Okay. Sure. I'm so, just going to say that's when I became a girl who couldn't say no because I came from the mentality of if someone offers you something, the answer is yes, don't be an asshole. By all means, but how do you even get in the door? Are you the sort of person who goes,
1: hey, I'd like to sort of uh, hedge my bets and, and double my money. Can I go out for more dramas? Can I can I be seen for- No, uh, no. no.
2: This is the apex of my good timing. Okay. This story. Uh, Because I was doing a comedy uh, series that no one would see. It's called Morton and Hayes. It's me and uh, Bob Amaral. Uh, But it was created by Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest. It was uh, 1991, the summer... Uh, replacement series, again, for your listeners in, in the summer of 1991, there was no original programming. The three networks uh, just showed reruns during the summer. Or they would burn off uh, pilots that they weren't going
1: to pick up. They were still doing that in 91. It was a sure. big hallmark of my of my childhood was like, oh, there's this one episode of this weird Dick yeah. Sean place a vampire sitcom right? and
2: now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a six episode summer series on CBS and it would because of Rob Reiner and his arms are on Bob amaral and I in the photograph it was on the cover of every TV guide supplement aspect of every Sunday times across the country a lot of publicity and then 11 people watched i think um because the premise of it was just so ridiculous rob would come out at the beginning of the show and say hi i'm rob reiner into camera uh, hi i'm rob reiner um you may know me as an actor and all in the family or as a director and Spinal Tap and other films. What well, you may not know is I've always been a big fan of the comedy teams of the 30s and 40s. Abin Costello, Laurel and Hardy. And of course, my favorite Chick Morton and Eddie Hayes. Recently, wow. while construction workers are tearing down a foster freeze to make room for a Dairy Queen or vice versa, They discovered a vault filled with old two reelers of Morton and Hayes. We've refurbished them and we'll present one each week. Tonight's entitled Saps at Sea. And he would reach down to a a projector and he would turn it on. And the light from the projector would fill your screen. And then a two-reeler, a 20-minute film in black and white, as if made in the 40s, would unspool. And it was... A 1940s uh, double act starring in these little movies, it was these shorts, me and, as one character and Bob Amaral as the other, Chick Morton and Eddie Hayes. But the timing of their bits were from the 40s. The, mm-hmm. the storylines and everything was from the 40s. This might have worked on cable. It was never going to work on CBS in primetime. So it's pretty fucking niche. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but, such, yeah. I mean, I think actually it would do really well now, something maybe, like that. Maybe, maybe, but, and even um, the great documentary Now on IFC uh, is a, oh, little, yeah. a little bit of the throwback film, uh, but brilliant. brilliant. I, I don't know that. I mean, look, Martin Hayes was, um, Pretty exceptional for what it was. And I get tweets every now and then from people who have seen it. Anywho, because of this comedy that I was co starring in, I was having lunch every day with Rob Reiner as he was in pre production for A Few Good Men. And here's a guy who himself has
1: been, has started in Multicam and has now spread his wings and is like, no, they're letting me do drama and I'm going to bring some of my comedy guys. A lot. Well, that's sort of the the
2: a... yeah. I mean, The Good Men was a a huge Broadway sensation yeah. as a play, 500 performances uh, at least. Um, you know, toured, continues to play around the country. I hear from people as a play. Um, and so we're having lunch one day, and Rob says, "You know this." This movie I'm prepping to do next uh, was a very f- successful play called A Few Good Men. I've got Tom Cruise as the lead. And I think I'm going to get Jack Nicholson to play this crazy colonel. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the part of Tom Cruise's character's uh, friend and co-counsel, I've got an offer out to Jason Alexander, but if, it gets, if Seinfeld gets picked up for season two, he won't be available. <laughs> And you're perfect for this part. Um, so I'm going to have you, I think, meet Tom and and let's talk about this. Now, for perspective, Seinfeld had aired only four episodes in season one. It was called The Seinfeld Chronicles. It was on Friday night. and It was again, not a lock by any stretch. Eleven people were watching. It was yeah. the, the antithesis of what it became uh, in terms of... It's chances of getting a second season. So I went home and started praying for Jason Alexander's success, and I believe things worked out rather well for both of us. But that's the craziest good fortune. Now, would Rob Reiner have thought of me if I wasn't co-starring in a show that he was working on every week for, for two months? I, 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 no, no, I don't think so. I think I was in his face. Um, I had done Avalon. I'd done, you know, a handful of oh, that's films. Right? No,
1: you done Avalon. That's right. That's not yeah. a.
2: that's not a particularly light ride. There's, there's no some heavy stuff in Avalon. Yeah, the, it's a very dramatic film. It's a saga.
1: It's a beautiful piece, by the way. If my if my listeners haven't haven't uh, seen Avalon, Barry Levinson film, part of his uh, his his Baltimore uh, trilogy, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a gorgeous piece of work.
2: Yeah, I venture to say, with no objectivity whatsoever, that it's his masterpiece. But uh, uh, I my character was very funny in it, but I just didn't. I ha, I, <laughs> I guess maybe because I had no formal training as a dramatic actor, it all just sort of unfolded uh, based on, again, the the belief of you just audition for everything, um, and and that that moment with Rob absolutely changed my life forever. You know, when you
1: when you. You know, I think imposter syndrome is sort of part and parcel in this business, even for people with extensive training, even for people who, you know, sure went to went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. But if you come in with a couple drama credits to do a a courtroom drama opposite Tom Cruise, who is already solidly an icon, this is we're what six, seven years after Top Gun, which made him just.
0: You He's know, a massive he movie star,
1: massive yeah. fucking movie star at that point. Uh, how did that go? What is what was it like to to come in? Because you're a famously intense guy.
2: He was uh, uh, gregarious. He was uh, instantly treated me like an equal, which was mm. not only unnecessary; it was uh, certainly not expected. Um, he, to this day, maybe the most generous of spirit and time. Uh, as a as a as an actor, a, a, a giant movie star. I've worked with many of them now. Um, yeah, yeah. No, he he. His intensity and his positive attitude. You know, I'd already by ninety one had a pretty great bullshit meter, and mm. um, it was the most infectious uh, energy and positivity I, I think I've ever experienced in a professional setting. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of surprises on that movie. Nicholson was a goofball. I did not expect that. I, I thought, this guy's been cool to five generations already. I don't even know how that math works. Uh, it's 100 years, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he's going to have to be talked about, not two. Oh, right? right. He'll be over there, we will be over here. Um, at the table read, you know, there was there was this ginormous uh, horseshoe design of tables with all the executives and every speaking part in a giant soundstage, and Jack was the last to arrive, and as big of a moment as it was when Tom arrived, there was no real comparison. You know, Jack is Mount Rushmore. Yeah. So... He was a big surprise to me in how goofy and silly and and um <laughs> just loves being Jack Nicholson and is so good at it. It's so good, a, good at it. it. It's uncanny. And there was a moment that Rob Reiner tells when um they finally got around to shooting Jack's uh the courtroom scene with Jack. He only worked five days in the courtroom. I think he worked a total of ten days. Um it's the knowledge of this is probably out there for five million dollars. You work ten days. And I remember thinking, When you make half a million dollars a day, do you hit the snooze alarm? Or oh. do you race into the shower to be to to begin that day? There's solid arguments in both directions, really. You know? <laughs> there, there
1: there's there's one angle where you're like, you know, I really should hop too. There's a lot of money changing hands. And this
2: is like, well, listen, if I'm if I'm worth that much you like know, the, I, I'm like not going to hurry up and wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So starting the courtroom scenes with Jack, um, Rob historically, uh, went to him and, and said, look, do you want me to start shooting coverage of, of what you're seeing or coverage on you? If I shoot everyone else, it'll allow you to warm up. You know how this goes, Jack, which, which would you prefer? And Jack, uh, said, yeah, Rob, let's, uh, Let's let me warm up
0: a little bit. How about that? Uh, We'll start your coverage on the folks.
2: And so that's what they did. Rob set up his cameras on everyone else, and we we shot from Jack's POV. And what Rob noticed, and what all of us noticed, was that every take, Nicholson's performance uh, had a level of intensity that you see in the film Mm. all off camera. Uh, And after only... five or six, seven of these takes, Rob went over to Jack and said, okay, so I'm going to need you to save a little in the tank, Jack, uh, for when we do put a camera on you, you're, you're being incredibly generous to the other actors. And I, I think clearly they all appreciate it as do I. Um, but I just, you know, why, why are you working so hard? And Jack (laughs) said, uh, as the story goes, Rob's story. Jack just looked up at him with that Cheshire grin and said, "I just love to act, Robbie." Um. Mm. So yeah, he's that guy, and so the That's whole nice. thing, yeah, the whole thing was rather uh, filled with surprises. J.T. Walsh, one of the great character actors I out of Chicago, J.T. J. J. Walsh, plays Markinson, and I, I remember being in his trailer one day and confessing to him that I had no formal training that this movie. I was like, where's Waldo in this cast? And this was the movie I'd be found out on uh, that I just am not going to cut it. And he said, uh, he was such a great character, very subversive and very um, sort of conspiracy theory guy about most things. And he said, you know, you've um, I've watched, I've kept an eye on you and you're, you're already doing a technique in acting that people study their whole lives to figure out. And You're already doing it. It's called Less Is More. Mm-hmm. um you're you're in your mind's eye, you're probably just trying to play it real and authentic, but it's coming off as that, and that takes a real technique to do less. but I will tell you there's a second half to that theory of less is more, and the second half is nothing is best if you can do nothing in a scene and steal focus, you win <laughs> and so I uh say. Kiddingly, but also sincerely, I have now spent a career uh, trying to do nothing in film, on film, until The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the first time I have played a loud, obnoxious Jew. And it's the biggest sensation, clearly, in television I've ever been involved in. But also, when all of my friends and significant other all said, it's the role you were born to play, I did not appreciate it.
1: No, that's rude.
2: That's really weird. That's a strange thing to say to someone. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I mean, I'm channeling Lou Jacoby from Avalon. By the way, you cut the turkey, oh, but i me. We leave. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Hundred yeah, percent. Are you?
1: That's so interesting. I usually save this for later in in the in the show, but since we're talking about JD TT Walsh, Walsh anyway, of whom I was a big fan, um, uh, and who was so good at small. Mo- he actually has a death scene in a few Good Men. That is brutal in its simplicity. Uh, he gets into his full military dress and kills himself. And and you don't you just see him get dressed in this rainy hotel room and you have no idea what's going on something suddenly the guns in his fucking mouth. And it's it's brutal, but you just this is a man who's just fallen apart and is on autopilot and knows too much and, and knows that he's not going to be able to live with it and goes out like a soldier. He's so he's so heartbreaking in that scene. Were there other guys coming up, um, other other character actors, other supporting guys that you would look at and be like, oh man, I, I could just watch that guy. Maybe guys who were also doing very little and, and still drawing the eye?
2: Yeah, of course. Always. Um Yeah, I mean, I I I think one of the things that drew me to acting or wanting to according to my mom ever since i was maybe 5 and she would take me to the movies i would come out of the movie with her in a zelig kind of fashion as one of the characters in the film not doing an impersonation of the actor but uh possessed uh by a character from the film and i remember walking to school at that young of an age thinking there was a camera in front of me moving backwards and i was being filmed the walk to school was a a, a moment that that was my let's pretend you know There's stories of marty short tells in the documentary i think uh misery loves comedy about being in his attic and yeah. acting out all these scenes and uh So I remember the walk to school was, was a scene in the film. What, what I
1: have to ask, and I bet you have an answer. Who was scoring it?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. And it's hilarious. And, um, you know, I I've never given it any thought. So it's I my, answer, I don't think that's I don't my think answer that's true. My answer would be flippant. Well, at age five, I wasn't scoring the picture yet.
1: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. In hindsight, are yeah. you an are you an Ennio Morricone five year old? What's your story?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I, I mean, I mean, uh, I I'm almost of mind to do the Tarantino needle drop throughout the film uh, than it being scored because um, that's certainly how cool I thought I was. Yeah. Uh, so I think I've always sort of collected these character actors. And then working with Matthew and Lemon and the Grumpy Old Men movies they, they might've been two of my favorite character actors who became movie stars, but they were character actors through and through. And I would argue, and I think Brad Pitt would agree that he's a phenomenal character actor. That's a really um, good point. You know,
1: I, yeah. I, his ability to walk away with a small part early in his career, I'm thinking specifically of true romance, which as far as I'm concerned, is his Oscar role, with all due respect to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his, his couch locked stoner. He literally does not stand up in that film and steals every scene he's in from Gandolfini, <laughs> from incredible actors. He's so strong in that. That's, you know Yeah. I can't believe we're saying like,
2: you know, it's time Brad Pitt got his due. Well, but his due as a character actor. And by the way, when I think of character actors, I don't necessarily think of small parts. I just think of as supporting parts. Yeah. Um who aren't above the title selling tickets. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um hey, I know you. You're on a horse. Um <laughs> I I love every square inch and every frame and every sound and of once upon a time in Hollywood for Me the too. Record, for the I record.
1: could not, I saw it 3 times in theaters. I haven't done that since fucking 1977 in Star Wars. I yeah. don't know what it was.
2: Yeah. Cuz
1: it's funny cuz as much as it's a love letter to the movie business, it's really a love letter to the TV business, which is my bread yes. and butter. Yes. And I'm just watching this guy go from guest star to guest star. And having the rare occurrence of working one day and airing that night, which has happened to me twice in a career.
0: (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) I've
2: heard tell that the original cut was four hours and I just pray he releases it
1: somehow, somewhere. Sign me up, shoot it into my veins. I'll go see that three times. I don't give a shit. I love that movie. And it also, um, it's also fun. When he's got Nicholas Hammond as Sam Wanamaker, what I know <laughs> Lemon and Mathau are, are of that ilk where you could look like a scruffy character guy
2: and be, or in Mathau's case, or in Mathau's case, look like a basset hound. I mean, and he had that face as a young man. It, uh, I know. yeah, you go back it, to face in
1: the crowd, he looks like that.
2: He's so, the oldest looking
1: 30-year-old in in, in, history. in history, yeah.
2: Although other than Burgess Meredith, I think there's an <laughs> argument there. Burgess um, Meredith
1: was born geriatric, and we were just lucky to have him
2: as much as we did. Yeah. And I was lucky to work with him twice on those Grumpy Old Men movies, and because he of really course. was. and also get to God, that's joke. right. He
1: was so old. He played Matthew's that dad. That's right. I'd forgotten that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and wasn't much older in real life, but of course, looked up. Uh, but I- In the outtakes of The Grumpy Old Men, he does a lot of different jokes when he's looking out the window, alluding to what he'd like to sexually do. And so I was on set and the director was saying, What else you got? And I was literally riffing. And then Burgess Meredith was saying, I'll take, I don't remember his voice, but
0: I, I like to take the, you know, whatever it was
2: skin boat to Tuna Town. You're definitely cutting that. But I, but it's in the movie, it's in the optics. <laughs> I could just, I just kept giving him all these and to see this, you know, this icon. So, so yeah, Methow and Lemon had these queries where you were allowed to, do the silliest comedy and also the most intense drama. So in terms of going and you can be a
1: romantic lead. Matha was a romantic lead when I was growing up, which fucked me up for life. Obviously, because sure. you know, I, I go into this career and I'm like, oh, but well, great, that's you know, house calls, hopscotch, hopscotch. Yeah. He's a romantic lead and a fucking spy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does that tell a young character actor
2: about yeah. like the possibilities? <laughs> well, it it was great because those possibilities were endless. And I don't at know the that time. That's, yeah. I don't know that that's happening as much. So I went, I studied at the feet of those comedians who went on Tonight Show and sat next to Johnny and made him laugh. And by the way, that first time on with him, when I'm standing behind that curtain with Macaulay and I'm hearing the band wind down from the commercial that they were playing through, and it comes to the intro, and Johnny says, uh, welcome back, folks. My next guest is uh, he's an actor. He's got a new movie out, uh, Ron Howard, director called Willow. We'll talk about that. Uh, I also, I, I understand he's a comedian, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. And I had practiced walking through those curtains so many times in my mind. And so one of the questions was, do I that I had for myself, do I wave to Doc? Because all of my heroes, when they came through that curtain, would wave to Doc. And I thought, this is your first time on the show. Asshole! Don't wave. You don't know Doc. You don't know Doc. No, the audience knows you don't know Doc. So even (laughs) if you did know Doc, you're not waving. Get and also get over to the fucking couch. (laughs) You've just been introduced. The king is standing at his throne, waiting for you. So I got over there, and Johnny would lean over the desk momentarily, shaking my hand or the guest hand as they would then sit to his right, and we sat down. I guess it's on YouTube or so I've been told. And he says, uh, now, Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, You're in this new film, Willow, which we're talking about in just a moment. Somebody told me that you do impersonations. Is that right? Now, there's a pre-interview, spoiler alert. And Jim McCauley says to me, how do you want Johnny to set up your impressions? And that was pretty much verbatim. What I had sort of said, have him say, you're in this new movie to establish that in the audience's mind. And then have him say, but first, I understand you do impersonations. Without setting up, do you do Peter Falk's Columbo, right? Just, I understand you do impressions. And he was flawless, as he always was in those (laughs) Carson segues and intros. Now, somebody told me, I got so comfortable on the show with him that I eventually, when he said, now somebody told me. I interrupted him and said, "Who told you?" And he smacked my (laughs) (laughs) and he smacked my arm and said, "Never you mind." It was one of my all-time favorite moments. So, but the first time, the first time when he said, "Now somebody told me you do you do impersonations," is that right? Without missing a beat, I launched into Peter Falk as if Peter Falk was sitting on that couch. And I realized now, oh, once again, I'm more comfortable as Peter Falk than I am as myself. When everyone's staring and I just launched into, excuse me,
0: Johnny, I hate to bother you. Jeez, I don't want to be a bitch,"
2: And he laughed so hard. He was clutching his chest, pushing himself away from the desk, you know, that Carson thing. Yeah. And I, I only brought it up again because the, I don't think I got to the outcome, which was my evil plan that I orchestrated, that I took the reins of my life and career, led to that moment. And it went so well that he had me back on the show. Two or three times a year until he retired. And I know that it was because, moreover, more importantly than what I had laid out, I knew as a fan of him and the show that A, and maybe most importantly, he loved Peter Falk. Not an impression mm-hmm. of him. He loved Peter Falk. Peter was on all the time, all the yeah. time. He could not get enough of Peter. He was fascinated by Peter's odd um, style and, of speaking and 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 storytelling. Speaking of unconventional leading men, hundred uh, uh, percent Academy Award nominee for Murder Incorporated as a character actor. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, work with Cassavetes. Giant, brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, and also about six months after that first Tonight Show of Carson, seeing me do that Peter Fall compression and and losing it. I was accosted in the produce section at Ralph's by
0: Peter Falk, who had seen the appearance and said, how do you do that with your eye? Do you mind me asking? I mean, me, I understand. But how do you do that? (laughs) I had, in fact,
2: trained myself to move just one eye uh, because Peter Falk was very open about having a glass eye. Um, I remember reading a TV guide he told stories about being young he had he was a car accident at age 3 and had a glass eye ever since and he, one story I remember he was playing little league and he slid into second base and the ump called him out and he stood up as an 11 year old dusted himself off popped out the eye handed it to the ump and said you clearly need this more than I do oh my god yeah exactly oh so so peter fogg actually asked me <laughs> why do i do that with-? then my second time on the tonight show mccauley says johnny wants you to teach him how to do the one eye moving. can you teach him how to do that i said yeah it's a trick i figured it out i of course i can teach him so i taught carson how to make one eye move now i had seen Ann bancroft uh has a cameo in her husband mel brooks's film of uh, maybe to be or not to be or silent she's, movie what something there's a close she's, up of oh, her. She,
1: has a, she has a short role she's, she's huge in to be or not to be she's she's the romantic she's the uh, Carol Lombard in that um, okay yeah, well, I, think cl- I think it's a silent movie yeah
2: there's a close up of her and she does this with her eyes oh my god oh right yes and when I saw her do that I said if you isolate one half she is if these are your eyes they don't normally stick this far out of your head and you cross them And then look to the left and then cross them and then look to the left and then cross them and then look to the left. It looks like just one eye has moved. And that is all I'm doing, sir. So that is what I showed Johnny. And he did it as he threw it to commercial. Ah, Excuse me, folks. And he crossed the eye. And then I have to mention this. Every single time I was on The Tonight Show after that. And he would introduce me, and I I did wave to Doc, and I would pass in front of his desk for that nanosecond when he was standing there shaking your hand, you know. unlike Jay, who danced out from behind the desk to greet the guest. Hey,
0: good to see you. How are you? The
2: king <laughs> stood at the fucking throne, yeah. and he would pass in front of him, he would shake your hand. But every time after that second appearance when I taught Carson how to do the one eye, and, I, and in that nanosecond of him shaking my hand, he leaned over the desk, crossed one eye as I was sitting and said, excuse me, I hate the Bobby. Now, that was in inarguably the most nerve-wracking six minutes of any year. Johnny Carson was saying to me as I sat down, we have an inside joke. Welcome back. Have a seat. Oh, my God. And the brilliance of the, I promise he probably did something similar with all the guests that he liked and then that was the greatest compliment you could ever receive from a comedian or a friend who watched the appearance the greatest compliment was not that bit worked this bit did well the greatest compliment was johnny loves you johnny really likes you
1: and we whatever however this goes down tonight i'm your guy you know whatever if god forbid this is the wrong crowd or whatever i'm your guy That's got to have been uh, amazing. Uh, It's funny, it all kind of sticks around here because you you work with Rickles, who was another Carson stalwart on- uh, And a heroine. And and yeah, Rickles. God, I loved Rickles. Rickles was a a special kind and, and was starting to do a bunch more dramatic work. But Casino's an outlier anyway because I had forgotten how many funny people are in that movie not really allowed to be- that funny. You're in there and Rickles is in there. I forgot one of the fucking Smothers brothers
2: is a corrupt sounder in that. Completely Tommy Smothers, Tommy Smothers. Alan, there. Alan King Alan
1: King is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that that Scorsese did on purpose? Was there a sense of like we're gonna we're gonna put these comedic guys just to kind of put everyone on edge in the film?
2: I've heard two versions, one from Alan Lewis's casting longtime casting director, that he loved comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, King of Comedy certainly suggests as much, and he also has used comedians in his other films. Ileana Douglas uh, is a friend, and we've done a film together. Oh, we got to
1: get Ileana Douglas. I'm sorry. I'm just writing this down frantically. Oh, my God. I adore her.
2: I'm sure she would love to come on. She has amazing stories. But she also insists, and you'll have to ask her, that because she was dating Scorsese at the time, she had his ear when he was casting Casino and said to him, you have to hire this funny person, you have to hire this funny person, you have to she took credit for me being in the film. <laughs> you know, she bu- she burst my my complete bubble that that it was Scorsese's idea. Um, but because it was an offer, you know, my agent called up and said, if we talk about a year, I'm on the set of the shooting the usual suspects. And my, oh agent, my, God. my agent contacts me and says, Martin Scorsese would like you to be in his next film. It shoots in Vegas. Features Vegas written by Nick Pledge who wrote Goodfellas starring De Niro Joe Pesci and Sharon Stone. So that that's one of those oh you can take me now <laughs> moments. <laughs> uh uh yeah yeah. So so yeah I mean there were a lot of funny people in that and and um I, you know we didn't we never I never talked about it with uh Scorsese but I did become very good friends with Rickles during that and um oh man he he uh he shared with me early on he said i i own De Niro." i said what do you mean he said well believe it or not when De Niro grew up he was in a put-down group uh on the street corners there were two types of social gatherings among men his age young men they were doo groups who would stand on the street corners and sing and they were put down groups your mother this your mother that they would uh, play the dozens play the dozens play the dozens indeed and to those to that group rickles was god sure of course and rickles says this to me that he knows this and he says therefore i'm telling you i own this guy sure enough on the set He would go after De Niro. First of all, you have to understand when De Niro walks on set, every sphincter tightens. It's an audible sound. And in the middle of, I don't know, 150 crew, 100 extras, the wedding scene, uh, Rickles is standing next to De Niro. De Niro is acting. In the middle of the take, while De Niro is speaking his dialogue, Scorsese's watching, camera's rolling, Rickles would turn on him. Is that the way you're going to do it? Like that? No, no. You got the awards. I'm sure you know what you're doing. Go ahead. <laughs> and you know, the rest of us are like, oh, shit. And But De Niro, <laughs> he, his shoulders going nuts. He laughed uncontrollably. And Rickles was right. He owned him. De Niro loved when Rickles just ripped into him, which Rickles, of course, then did at the drop of a hat. Uh, for the record, Pesci was not a fan. Of uh, Rickles. When Rickles also went after Pesci. Oh, interesting. The, the first and only time.
0: And Pesci mm. shut
2: it Pesci shut it down. When Rickles pointed out in front of everyone that Joe was so short, he was going to ride him around the set like a Shetland pony. Uh, and she basically said
0: you're a fucking riot no I get it I get it I'm a midget and you're a genius go fuck yourself Uh,
1: yeah and then I now is is that Joe in character or is that just that's probably just Joe. okay that's Joe is
2: himself and that's a quote I I refuse to be called out uh, when I offer up a quote involving words that people no longer accept uh, rightfully Uh, but I also saw (laughs) Pesci walking to his trailer after that scene, still mumbling to himself about how upset he was with that
0: fucking Jew brick God, sucker, fuck him!
2: And I said, hey Joe, he was just kidding around, and he turned on me and said, oh, yeah, no.
0: you're another one! The two of you, is go fuck yourself!
2: Yeah,
1: great. I great. love that Joe Pesci is, uh, this is what is it is, shoots 94 for release in 95, Frank? Indeed. Uh-huh. So I love that Joe Pesci who is coming off of uh he's coming off of Goodfellas he's coming off of Home Alone he is coming off of the Lethal Weapon uh, yep. franchise no sense of humor s- suddenly the least funny person in the room I love that that's hilarious yeah. to me I've got a couple of recent things I want to talk about um, you brought up Maisel anyway Maisel's a hell of a piece of work um I, I love the show. It's It's got this weird authenticity where it's not necessarily trying to say, this is what the 60s were like, but it's sort of like, this is what the 60s idea of the 60s was like. This is how the 60s presented itself at the time. It looks sort of like a big Doris Day, pastel, brightly colored uh, uh, piece of work, um, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, and
2: certainly you're right. It, but I would take it one step further and say – it's Amy Sherman-Palladino and Dan Palladino's idea of how the '60s presented themselves. It's a heightened
1: pace. It's a heightened yeah. Um, yeah. cinematography, yeah. and as such, there's some there's some heightened acting to it. You, you've sure. said that it's the that people are telling you it's the role uh, you were born to play. That's not for me to say, but how do you, how do you, uh, let's say it
2: isn't, how do you adjust? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the hardest work I've ever done and the most rewarding, that's for sure, without really? exaggeration, because um, as much as I love improvising and the opportunities to do so, in fact, she does I not still, have
1: it, famously so, she will not have that.
2: Yeah, can't change a syllable. Now, I work great in both ways. When we did a few good men, I mean, now when I say I work great in both, I mean, from my own perspective, I don't mean I do great work. I mean I'm fine doing uh, either version of the. You get to improvise, or you better be letter perfect. Fugitive Men was a play, even though some adjustments were made from the play to the screenplay. They were both written by Aaron Sorkin and, and Rob Reiner. And even though Aaron was quite young during the shooting of A Fugitive Men, um, Rob Reiner wanted very religiously to stick to the word. Uh, don't change a syllable. Whereas The Usual Suspects, which won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, almost every line I'm quoted back by fans of the film, I improvised. And in fact, to this day, insist that Christopher Macquarie, while he's doing brilliant work writing and directing the Mission Impossible movies, two more to come did um, the last two, uh, you know, he was 26 year old, wrote this brilliant script, but I had freedom. Yeah. And I would like the Oscar to sit on my shelf one out of 52 weeks. That's all I'm asking. And I think That's it's reasonable. Fair, Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, and this is lifetime. And I'm going to say mine much shorter than his.
1: Yeah. You should have, um, you should have uh, at the very least visitation rights. <laughs> That's you improvise a on a, if you improvise lawyer up, fuck it. Um, you, you, <laughs> if you improvise on a, on a film, improvise on a film that wins the best screenplay Oscar. I'm yeah. now thinking that like i'm I'm going back through the film in my head. there's a moment where uh an actor who let's just not mention uh I, I identifies himself as uh being named verbal. He hasn't it's the first line he says in the film, and your yes. line is something
2: to the effect of, yeah, I was gonna tell you to shut up, and you're one hundred percent correct. That was improvised also in that same scene, the first it. time the first time the brilliant Benicio del Toro speaks, my character. Uh, says, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> not in the script. In fact, in fact, if I may be totally honest- Please, please. Uh, that's not even me improvising. That was me breaking the scene. <laughs> that was Kevin Pollock, not Todd Hockney. That was Kevin Pollock saying to the director, what the fuck did he just say? Because- How much of, okay, go ahead. It was decided- that for that first setup with all of us together in the lockup they didn't tell us what benicio was going to do now there's only one take of that of let's let's find out what happens here um you know when brian singer asked me to do the film there were two roles left, the one that Benicio did and the one that I did. And he said, which of these two do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't want to do that one um, because that character only is only in the film, spoiler alert, to die as a way to tell the other suspects, you can't run from Kaiser Soze. That character right. has no moments. That character has no, moment, character has no um, scenes or, or, or doesn't change any anything about this film? He's McManus's sidekick. It's a thankless part, and um, <laughs> so I'm going to do this one. And then Benicio, as Fenster, steals every scene he's in. That's how brilliant he is. So I just want to make a point of that. The um,
1: the the scene in uh, the lineup, not the lockup, but the the poster image. The scene of all of you yep. guys in in the lineup where you're all supposed to do the same the same sentence so they can do a voice ID is riddled with a spontaneity that makes me suggest that I, I'm not even sure all of you guys know the fucking cameras rolling. There's just such a, there's so much life to that scene of these five guys who have been in lineups before. And, uh, It's got so I'm taking I'm I'm gathering that a lot of this was just in the moment stuff because you're swatting at each other and and Baldwin is hitting Del Toro. There's a bunch of shit going on in that scene. Yeah, that's not on the page.
2: Once again, uh, Christopher McQuarrie, who got an Academy Award for best screenplay, really needs to. He wrote that scene as a very somber, a very straightforward each. Uh, criminal in the lineup and or co-star of the film is to not be impressed that they've been gathered thusly by the police and read the line with sort of a straightforward go fuck yourself which if i may is how i the first one to or littlest suspect the first one to read from the card in the lineup i read it as it was written in the script just matter-of-factly Go fuck yourself. And then all hell breaks loose. And it breaks loose because the other actors decided not to do it as scripted. Uh, read it, the words that are there, but, but put their own twist on, to the point where we couldn't stop laughing. And at lunch, it was the only time that the director came to We the Suspects and said, you guys have fucked. Me. I've got not a frame I can use from the first half of the day we yep (laughs) and that was like telling nine-year-olds don't laugh at the funeral we went right back after lunch (laughs) we went right back after lunch and continued laughing and fucking off i tell the story that i think benicio farted seven takes in a row which is a very special gift you gotta pace yourself you can't it's really so um you know the director at the end of the day threw up his hands said thanks guys great just terrific thanks for nothing and went back to editing and created a scene out of outtakes. That is the exact intent of the written scene, which was all of us, fuck you to the police. We're not impressed that you arrested us. That's, yeah. that's now, you know, that iconic scene. Um, and to my co-stars credit, they chose another route other than the one Chris McCory wrote or that I performed as the first person reading the card as a way to say to the, pl- but the point was we just couldn't stop laughing and we couldn't get through it without laughing. There's a moment where I think Gabriel sort of covers his face. He's he can't yeah. help. But, so yeah, it's the same An instant camaraderie for these guys who just met. Yeah, it is who Who've just met and who we have just met. We as an
1: audience member need to understand why we should possibly care about this group of sociopaths. Yeah, you know what? 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 Where is our skin in the game? Like, oh, they're incredibly like it works much the same way parts of Goodfellas work. Is yeah. that you know you see these people enjoy each other yeah. and it makes us want to hang out with them, which is it's an interesting uh, kind of phenomenology. I don't there. know Can I do don't, a, why ahead. I
2: got off of. um Why I steered us away from Maisel so quickly. But the idea that she wants uh, things letter perfect, uh, it was easy for me to adapt to that because it happened on A Few Good Men, even though it it wouldn't be my preference. Now I'm introduced to a part of theater where I have zero training and experience, which is the one and Amy Sherman and Dan Palladino have reimagined what an eight to ten-page oneer is, and the f- and the show has become synonymous with the oneer. And uh, what that means is, I have to, you know, my character doesn't listen, so the scenes that I'm in, he's just talking, and I'm used to looking at a page of a script that I'm in, and at the beginning of a eight-page scene, I say to Tom Cruise's character, what do you think we should do? And then he speaks for eight pages, during which I say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh, okay. And at the end of which I say, all right, let's go. And that's my experience of an eight-page scene that is not shot in one. It may be done in a master to have that option, but it's never intended and there's coverage from every angle. So when you have to do it in one take, um, you you have to study it like a piece of theater, which was just, I'm not agreeing for the record that I became a lazy actor who never had to do that. I'm just saying for the record, I'm a lazy actor who never had to do that. And uh,
1: It's my, choreography.
2: It's choreography. And there's 14 pieces that are moving and you don't want to be the reason where you know, someone's saying cut start again um and as i said my character doesn't listen so it'll be someone else me someone else me on the page for dialogue which is just not what i'm used to so the most challenging the most rewarding uh for sure we're just finishing up season four right now um we've been shooting since early january and um i'm happy to report it is still a love fest everyone still cares very much about each other we love each other as a cast and crew and and that also i'm guessing is a miracle what's amazing about
1: about uh and i've i've done you know maybe three wonders in my life is that the wonders are the one thing where like you don't get a groove going necessarily the longer you get into a long shot the scarier it gets because if you fuck it up 7 pages in you're the biggest asshole on set
2: and after 10 takes at it yeah you know so we we'll, fuck up
1: on the first page fine back to what it's right there
2: no yeah, no biggie hey exactly the world right. keeps turning <laughs> yeah and so we're doing them several times an episode you know it's not just a
1: one or no it's not they 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 do there's there's stuff that they do in that uh those catskills episodes that made my head hurt yeah where a, a, it almost takes it you know, I envy my in-laws who watch the show and like, oh, I remember the Catskills. The Catskills were like that new, and there's like no <laughs> idea of the technique going behind it. While the rest of my wife and our city bear, oh, oh, god, this must have been so. Oh, god, how yeah. do you even light this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. No, it's it's rarefied air, and I think one of the reasons there's a love fest going on is that everyone working on the show has this similar sense of awareness of the rarefied air, um, especially the the older, uh, more experienced of us.
0: Well, you get
1: those casts sometimes where you've got a mix of people who are super new or have really are real veterans. And if you're lucky, the new people are like, oh my God, I can't believe I lucked into this. And the, the, the veterans are like, no, this really isn't, this is special.
2: This is, Four Seasons is something. That's impressive. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. Also, I just haven't really been a part of something that was in the zeitgeist uh, only after the fact- Oh, in terms of TV. In terms of TV. Well, ever while, while I was working. Right, right. Right? Usual suspects, people may not believe this, but it only made a little over 20 million at the box office when it came out. The distribution was completely botched. It was only in, I think, 800 screens at most. It feels like everybody and their mom
1: was talking about it. I mean, granted, I'm, I, I was living in New York. I grew up there, and that's a certain media ecology there, I guess. But I'm very surprised to hear it. It did. It killed on video, though, once it came out on video.
2: Oh, no. It's had five special edition DVDs over the years that make Gabriel Byrne very angry because um, we had a pretty shitty deal.
0: All of us, <laughs> we got we got basically
2: paid coffee and donuts and our, our net point, weirdly, after many hundreds of thousands of, many hundreds of millions made from from VHS and DVD, I have not seen a dime. Um, But those things became a part of the zeitgeist. Few Good Men certainly part of the zeitgeist. You know, there's certain aspects, casino over the years, but to be working on something while it's, in the zeitgeist is not something I've ever experienced. Um, People speaking different languages accosting me asking, want to talk about it Um, while I'm still working on this thing. That's
1: a nice shot in the arm to go back to work being like, oh, this thing that I'm doing right now, people are enjoying right now.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, listen, 20 Emmys in three seasons, that also kind of helps secure... Doesn't hurt. Secure... But who's counting? (laughs) Yeah, first of all, it's not a competition. I don't even know why I brought it up. Wait. (laughs) Yeah, no. It it the whole thing. It's just it's it's bizarre. It's um beautifully unique. Uh, and again, rarefied air, good fortune that I was that I'm able to be a part of it. I mean, I'm acutely aware
0: of that.
1: In closing, do you do either lemon? Or
2: Mathau. I made the mistake of doing Walter Matthau to Walter Matthau. That's one thing Ooh, I avoid. I understood
1: there were a couple different versions of Mathau who could show up. I've heard some stories.
2: Yeah. He didn't have the best reputation over the years. He certainly had one by the time I worked with him. I mean, he certainly was a gas to be around by then because he was oh, uh, good. quite elderly. I, I avoid doing the person for the person like the plague. Uh, Obviously. Yeah. There's- It took me probably 25 years to realize that doing an impersonation is a parlor trick in that if I can figure out someone you like and I can recreate them in front of you, I will steal the affection you have for the actual person. It's a weird dynamic and it's magic when it works. So if the actual person's there, I'm just a monkey talking. Um, So that's why I've always avoided it. And also they never hear it. Alan Arkin's the only exception. He he loves it, hears it, has said to me after seeing me perform live at backstage. You know what? i I've decided I'm going to stop stammering. I don't like the way it sounds. Can I be honest with you? When you when you I I don't. huh. it, it doesn't make any sense. Who talks like that? It's crazy. Um, and so I did get so comfortable with Walter Walter Matthau that. At one point, I said, you know, I got to say it. I'm sorry. I just got to say it. But the the moment in The Odd Couple, when you take the bowl of uh, pasta or spaghetti, the argument goes, and you throw it against the wall and say, now it's garbage. Uh, has always stayed with me, and it's just so beautiful. It's just such a great choice. I don't know whose it was, but, you know, hoping to get a story. Instead, I got, no R, kid. It's garbage. So he heard the impression and corrected the spelling or pronunciation. There's no Welcome R. Now. There's no R, kid. <laughs> it's garbage. No, it's Garbage. Favorite moment with him, just in closing. Uh, We were working together when Marissa Tomei won the Academy Award. And you probably remember there was a little bit of controversy. She was up against four exceptionally touted, brilliant British actresses. Vanessa Redgrave being among them, if memory serves. Uh, Yep. Joan Plowright. Fuck. Yeah. It was four. and. Marissa Tomei, who's lovely and wonderful and exceptionally talented. But, you know, the movie's uh, what it is. I mean, it was such a controversy. There was even talk that Jack Pounce read the wrong name. I mean, it was a whole thing. But It was a
1: shit show. It yeah. was a real shit show at the time, yeah. I, I think there's a little bit of anti-comedy snobbery going
2: through I agree. that controversy. I agree, and but, certainly but if, you're, if you're a, bet, a betting person and, and, or you understand math. The four British actresses easily canceled each other out. There are a myriad yeah. reasons why yeah. Mr. Tomei's name was read. But in the gathering of actors, Jack and Walter shared a giant suite in a hotel in Minneapolis where we shot. Because when their front people went to get them the best room in town, there was only one. And they argued, the reps argued over who was going to get it until they found out there was a bedroom at the other end. And the odd couple lived together while we were shooting. Yes, what exactly? And there was a there was a baby grand in the in the center of this thing, and Jack Lemmon would play beautifully. The few times they had us over, one of these times was to watch the Academy Awards that year, and and the winner and everyone was talking and when the mention of the nominations, uh, I worked with John Plowright and Avalon, and people are talking about who they when they worked with the other British actresses, Judy Davis was one of those actresses i just remember um right yeah and the winner is marissa Tomei. so now there's an explosion from the we know more than you do actors and actresses gathered in this suite watching the show uh, that i was present of Uh, and people are just this is not fair and cacophony and the whole time walter is seated in a chair a nice comfy leather chair about Four feet from the TV and he's just staring straight ahead. He's the only one who seems unmoved by this. I mean everyone is just up in arms. as a flailing of arms. It all finally settles down and Walter in his comedic timing brilliance waited for the first moment of silence to say I'll sell my Oscar for five cents. <laughs> that was... That was his beautifully timed protest. <laughs> and scene. Kevin Pollack, thank you so,
1: so much for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, this, uh, please come back and, and, and talk some more. We didn't touch on mom. Uh, we, there's <laughs> well, a ton of stuff. I, I mean, the death scene on mom alone is an episode unto itself. Mm-hmm. Please come back.
2: I oh, I would like to, you know. Fortunately, your producer and I are longtime friends, and he reached out to me in an email and said this was an opportunity to talk about myself, and he knew that's all he had to say. And that is an episode wrap
1: on Kevin Pollock. You can follow him on Twitter at Kevin Pollock, on Instagram at Kevin Pollock one two three, and check out his improvised podcast Alchemy. This
0: forever. <laughs> Dog.